Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Today's guest is Walid Jabshe, President at International General Insurance, IGI. Walid and IGI have a really interesting story to tell. IGI is the 20-year growth story of a very small regional insurance business founded in Jordan that over time has fully internationalized, redomiciled to Bermuda, and is now present in the major international insurance hubs. It's A-rated by AMBest and S&P, and now employs around 300 staff writing 25 lines. It produces underwriting profits that would be the envy of all but the very best players in our business. And finally, the business listed on the NASDAQ two years ago. Were this a company with different origins, I think we would be quicker to celebrate its achievements. But at the moment, the market is sceptical. But as I'm guessing Walid would probably put it, we are who we are, and it is what it is. This interview gives a strong idea of what makes this close-knit business tick. Walid is meticulous and thoughtful in his responses, and is excellent company. Here's a firm with a patient strategy that is happy to stay out of the limelight and quietly get on with its business in the confidence that at some point it will eventually get more attention and win greater recognition. It makes for a very interesting 30 minutes. Enjoy the podcast. This episode is supported by Oxbow Partners. Oxbow Partners is a management consulting business specialising in the London, Bermuda and European insurance and reinsurance markets. In fact, in 2021 and 2022, they were named one of the top 10 consultancies in the sector by the Financial Times. It's fascinating speaking to the team about the kinds of topics they're supporting. Helping reinsurers take a strategic view of their operating models. Designing smart follow syndicates in the Lloyds market. And developing ESG responses. The company's strapline talks about giving executives a fresh perspective. So if you're keen to understand the challenges and opportunities coming down the track for your business, I'd recommend giving the team at Oxbow Partners a call. Walid, welcome to the Voice of Insurance. Thanks for having me, Mark. Appreciate it. When IGI was founded 20 years ago, if you ask someone, what's IGI? They would have said, oh, it's a Middle Eastern company based out in Jordan. You've come a long way in 20 years. How would you like to be described now? Today, Mark, we're truly a global player. We've got six operations worldwide. We're a Bermudan company listed on a NASDAQ, so a US publicly listed company, and specializing in markets that we truly understand. And I think this is the key to it all. Our recipe for conducting business the way we do has always been investing in local talent and combining that with the technical expertise that's required. Because I think that is the bit that maybe some of our larger international competitors don't get. So we've got a network that focuses on the regional hubs that we're attracted to. And it's that combination, that recipe that really differentiates us in terms of the way we do things from our peers. We approach the business from a single hub perspective. So whilst we have six offices worldwide, we all operate under the same underwriting appetite, under the same capital, under the same capacity. We do not differentiate one office from the other. We operate under a single hub. We're one team, we're one unit, and we use that network to deliver the business in the best possible way that we can. And it's a big differentiator in terms of the level of service that we can provide because having boots on the ground does make a difference. And we're strong believers of that. The only missing link that we had before was the US. 
And now this is our third year writing U.S. business. We got our excess surplus license just over two years ago. So on that basis, we've become a truly global player. Yes, we just started as a small and decent company. Very proud of our roots, but we're a global company as it stands. It's a performance-based culture. We focus on technical underwriting and using capital, allocating capital to underwriting first, business first, because that's where we believe we can achieve the best returns. So would you say that global network is now complete? They're not some other place that you'd got on your list that you'd say, well, now if we tick this extra box, we have another office over here or another hub. I believe we have a very efficient network, a network, as I said, that works so closely and so well together that it produces proper results. We are a Bermudan company, as I mentioned, and our next operation now, we're in the process of setting up an office, a physical office, physical presence in Bermuda. We hadn't had one in the past. So we'll be adding to that network. I think the network is mature enough as it is also when we add Bermuda. In the future, if we believe, if we see the attraction to adding more to that, then we will, just like we do with lines of business or, or whatever the opportunity may be. So that Bermuda office would be an office with underwriters inside it? There will be underwriting resource on the ground in Bermuda and obviously other functions within the operation. You mentioned about the US business. How's that going as, I suppose, your newest operation? It's going really well. As I said, I mean, US, has, it's always a big step when you're an international player like us for 18 years. Is it a kind of an apprehensive moment? To it, it's a big move. It's a big move. And so, and so we had looked at it for many, many years and decided this wasn't the right time for us. We knew we were a global player. We knew what was missing. We knew it was just a matter of time before that final piece of the jigsaw puzzle was put in place. And I think our patience and our discipline to say, you know what, this is not the right time. There's always a push for growth. There's an ambition to continue growing. And in our industry, it's very, very difficult or can be very, very risky, you know, if the decisions that are made are not sound. And you try to get that timing right whenever you can. So we eventually, you know, we felt with market conditions, you know, the market was soft for many years and we started coming out of the soft market. Various classes of business, various territories around the world were improving. Then we got hit with COVID. That was like your black swan event. Seems we've had several of them in the last few years. And that put more pressure. And we said, you know what, this is the right time. So we went in, started writing business in the second quarter of 2020. We focus on short tail lines, so property, energy, contingency, terrorism. That's where our appetite lies. And it's been just like anything else, whether it's a new line of business or a new territory that we've entered into, it's always been methodical, gradual, step-by-step, step, very, very patient, very, very disciplined entry into it. Because as we were just talking about, it is a big move for a company like us. And it's a market where many people have gotten it wrong. And many people have gotten bit by it quite badly. So we want to make sure we got it right. The first couple of years, decent development of the portfolios, decent development of the exposures, making sure we don't bite off more than we can chew. And I think this is key to operating in our industry. So it's been great. We posted good growth in the US in the first quarter. I think the market has continued to be favorable. So we see that as a big growth area for us, but we're very mindful of the exposures and the risks that come with it and manage it in the best way we see fit. Obviously, you're a public company now and we can look at your regular financial statements. Earlier in the year, you'd noted already that there had been some tapering in some of that rate, although that's still within an overall 
favorable rating environment. Has that changed your risk appetite in any way? Not really. We started pushing up rates probably towards the end of 2017 as a market. We've had four or five consecutive years now of compound rate increases. Everybody talks about rate increases or rate decreases as a measure of where the market is and the attraction of the business that you're seeing in the market. The way we look at it is not like that. If you are having to provide rate reductions on business today, you're providing it on business that you've already charged or a business that whose rates have already increased quite significantly and arguably multiples of what they were back in 17, 18. So you can't look at the business and the attraction of the market in where per se as to whether you're getting rate increases or you're not getting rate increases anymore so the appetite changes or rates are starting to soften a little bit. You've got to look at the underlying rating adequacy of the business. That is the first and foremost. Almost look at the business as you see it if it was a new piece of business to you. Would you get involved? Would you not? The fact that your rate is higher or lower or the same as last year almost is irrelevant. It's the underlying rating adequacy of the business. If the adequacy is there, then the business is writable. If it's not there, then it's not writable. It's plain and simple. At this point in time, we feel across most of the lines of business that we write, our rating is above adequate levels. And I think with the environment that we live in, what's going on in the world, the increased loss activity on the CAT side and frequency and severity of it, the unfortunate situation in Ukraine, whilst you are seeing tapering, we expect the market to remain at attractive levels. And as long as they do that, then you know the opportunity for continued growth will be there. Somebody else on the podcast recently described it as putting your foot down, using a motoring analogy, in the sense of putting your foot on the accelerator. By and large, I think most of the areas that we operate in, most of the class of business that we ride are still very attractive. And so, yes, we will continue to anticipate growth. I mean, we had a great quarter the first year. We, we grew by almost 30% our top line and profits almost doubled in that quarter. But you have to be mindful. You have to monitor our industry changes, the markets change, the landscape change. There are some bits of the portfolio that are showing disappointing signals of where they're heading. But by and large, absolutely, the market is still in a very favorable state. And so we anticipate growth to continue. So you're looking at growth. And are you also looking at growth in potentially new lines? When we started the company, we started with three or four classes of business 20 years ago with a handful of employees. We now write around 25 different classes and subclasses. We're over 300 employees, six offices worldwide. You know, our growth has always been predominantly focused on organic growth. We always felt diversity is strength, whether it's in your portfolio, whether it's in your network, whether it's in your people. Diversity is always a strong point and an advantage. So we're always on the lookout for new opportunities. If you look at where we were, three, four classes at the beginning of the company's existence to now, we've averaged an additional class of business every year. We're always looking to diversify, always looking to develop a portfolio. Just like any other company, we're ambitious to grow, but grow the right way. So we added contingency, for example, last year. You know, contingency was a market that got annihilated right by the pandemic. Isn't it? Yeah. And heavily dislocated. And, you know, where there is dislocation, there's opportunity. That's the reality of things. And so we got into contingency, got a great underwriter, writing the business out of here. But with our footprint, geographical footprint, we've been able to make inroads and be one of the sort of almost pioneers within certain markets in that class. 
But going back to the additional business lines, we're always on the lookout. And so we're constantly monitoring, seeing what more we could do, what more we could add to the product suite that we already have. Is that really about finding the right people to do them more than the line itself? Definitely a top priority. I mean, you need the right people. And I think a lot of the success that we've been able to achieve as a company is because of the people at IGI, you know, the family. We always refer to it as the IGI family. And it's without them, the company would be nowhere. So it's people, of course. You need to find people that buy into the company's mindset, that buy into the company's strategy and approach to the business and to the markets, because not everybody would. But also it's the product and it's the timing of your entry into that product. And it's how you go about it. At the end of the day, we are not a top-line oriented company. We never have been and we never will be. We are focused on quality business, writing quality business and profits. That's the reason why we consistently outperform the majority of our peers, you know, from a results and underwriting combined ratio perspective. That is the ethos of our strategy. That is the ethos of what we do. Once you lose sight of that in this industry, you've lost the plot, in my opinion. And so it's finding the right people who are driven with that same mentality and try to get your timing right. An example, I mentioned the U.S., We stayed away from it for years because we knew an entry at that time may have been a lot more difficult for us and would have resulted in a below average type of portfolio that you want. You wouldn't have got the showing. No, and you would have had to compete more aggressively. And that's not our style. And so we bought our time. We stood on the sidelines. And once we felt opportunity was there, we went in. We made our move. Be interesting to talk about that style. Obviously, you are posting some really good combined ratios, really peer-beating combined ratios. But within that, the general administrative expense ratio is higher than some of your peers. So when you're talking about growth, you're saying you're not top line orientated. So I presume, are you generally relaxed about that underperformance in general and administrative expenses? Is that the price of finding that better business? Or would you like to grow so that you can halve that? If you doubled in size, you could leverage those expenses and make them a much smaller percentage of your overall GWP. We're very cognizant of our expenses and yes, they have obviously increased over the last couple of years, but we as a company, we've doubled in size over the last four years. It's about making the right moves at the right time and based on the strategy for the future. If you want to grow, your platform needs to grow, your teams need to grow. And in today's world, it's not just grab a bunch of underwriters and bring some more business and it's everything around it. You know, you've got to be able to service all that portfolio. And so we've grown quite a bit over the last few years. We see the attraction in the market. The opportunities are still there. And we anticipate that growth to continue. And so as a result, you've got to invest in your infrastructure ahead of that growth coming in. So a lot of that expense growth is in anticipation of where the company is going and what we want to achieve. On top of that, we became a public company just over two years ago. That changes the landscape and the dynamics of regulation, additional expenses that come with being a public company, reporting, regulation, insurance, the additional resource that you need to operate as a public company in various functions within the organization that you didn't need necessarily, or definitely not to the same magnitude as before. But, but by and large, we see the opportunity for future growth and we're preparing ourselves for that. So we're investing in our people, we're investing in our infrastructure, we're investing in IT. But the fruits of that, this is what I'm saying, they're investments. 
people look at them as expenses, but we look at them as investments. And the fruits of those investments will come down the road. So we're very cognizant of the expenses. We're constantly monitoring them. And we think over time... That those investments will pay off. And will pay off and, and, and trend our expense ratio will taper off as well as the fruits of those investments starts coming through. You mentioned about the IPO now over two years ago. Are you at all frustrated by the reaction of shareholders to the market, to IGI's IPO? A bit frustrated, but disappointed, to be totally honest with you. There's no doubt in my mind, and I venture to say many people who would look at this would tend to agree that the share price does not reflect the real fundamental value of the business. In time, strongly believe people will appreciate the company for what it is. It may sound biased, but the jewel that it is, our track record speaks for itself. And all the elements you know, we spoke about earlier, that is what has gotten us to where we are today. We've been performing on an exceptional basis. We've been outperforming most of our peers consistently. As I said, the track record speaks for itself, averaging a combined ratio of around 88% over the last 10 years. That's through the soft and hard stages of the cycle. And I think the shareholder base sees the value in the company. I don't think they have any doubt as to the technical abilities of IGI and the sound operating performance of the company because we've proven that we can manage this company properly over and over. You know, with hindsight, should we have stayed private? I don't think so. I think going public was a good move for us. A couple of the issues we faced was the timing. Timing was not very advantageous. I mean, we went public on March 17, 2020, which was the day we all went into lockdown. Our ability to engage with the investor base face-to-face, which is something I strongly believe in, and that's where you get the largest level of comfort with who you're dealing with, the largest level of knowledge, understanding of who you're talking to and what you're dealing with. That ability was hindered because of COVID, travel, and I think that all has had an impact. Do you think it will come good? Warren Buffett always said about the stock market is in the short term, it's a voting machine, and in the very long term, it's a weighing machine. And do you think your weight with those jewels will eventually be appreciated, will start to be weighed by investors when they see do you think you just have to keep posting the good numbers and then eventually people have to take notice? Listen, the most important thing we can do is continue to run the business. Sound, healthy, focus on protecting capital, growth, and value creation for our shareholders. That's the number one priority. When I get out of bed in the morning and come into the office, what we tell the teams, we continue doing what we're doing. Do not lose focus and do not be distracted by whatever is in the periphery. Our main job, our top priority, is continue running the business and generating the results that people are expecting from IGI. That is the number one priority. In time, I strongly believe, and it's not that it's IGI, any company, you know, going public is not always the smoothest ride, especially in the early days. And so in time, I strongly believe that we will get recognized and that will be reflected in our share price you know, by the investor community because a good company is a good company. Has the IPO brought you other things? Has it opened any doors for you? Does it make people look at you in a different way than they would have done? I think so. With going public gives you more financial flexibility. You know, We raised money when we went public through the transaction, so added to our capital base, allowing us to grow. 
gives you more financial flexibility, gives you more access to capital when you need it, cheaper access to capital when you need it. And the same thing goes for for Does debt. it help in front of clients, in front of brokers? I think it gives you more visibility, more credibility. When you're regulated by the most stringent regulators in the world, then that says something. It does give you more viability, more credibility. When you get rated by the rating agencies, people look at that. And so it does give you more visibility. And I think it's helped us with our entry into the US as well and helped us with the client base out there. You talk about a family culture and a family business in many ways. Does going public bring any conflict with that family culture to suddenly to be a public company? Does it affect your culture in any way? Or has it been hard to let go sometimes to say that, okay, it's not necessarily always my company anymore in the way it used to be? We've never referred to this as my company or, or, you know, Wasif as our CEO has never referred to this as my company. This is a family operation. All of IGI is a family. And that's what I mean when I say family operation. In terms of culture, I mean, we are who we are. I don't think somebody can define what your culture is. You define what your culture is. A culture is a reflection of who you are as a company, who you are as individuals, and the values that you hold yourself to. And so private or public, our culture is what it is. And our business is our business. There's no need to change just because we're now a public company. And we made it a point to make sure that the vast majority of our people, of of the employees, didn't feel the changes between going from private to a public company. No doubt there are more pressures a public company. And in certain areas, certain individuals within the organization, they will bear the brunt of those pressures because that's where they would naturally hit. But by and large, we've done everything that we can. And I think we've done a great job at making sure that most of our employees don't feel the transition or the change from moving from a private company to a public company. There is no business without its people. And the relationships that we have with each other matter. You know, we call a family business the values that you have to adhere to or should be adhering to. You know, these relationships are built on trust, integrity, honesty. We talk about these words and we throw them around a lot as an industry, but they have to be alive. They are alive. And that's how you get the teams to feel part of that family as well. That's very important to us. Within that capital structure, you've increased the dividend and brought in a buyback. If you're deploying your capital and buying shares back, should we read anything to say, well, therefore, there's not as much market opportunity as we thought? Or is it just that the shares are very attractive buy at the moment? <laughs> yes, we announced a reduction in the dividend, a potential share buyback. Those announcements were just part of a broader capital management strategy that we put in place to give us more flexibility, more capital, financial flexibility. If you think about it, we've been paying historically for the last several years at least, 40% payout on net profit, which if you compare that to our peers as well, is on the higher end of the spectrum. We believe better use of that is to give ourselves the capability to have that capital flexibility. First and foremost, it's to go towards the business, underwriting first. And as long as there are opportunities to continue in our growth trajectory, then that capital will first and foremost be used to finance that. The repurchase program is just simply another way of giving back money to our investors. We talk about the stock being valued where it is. You know, buying stock back is accretive to book value. It's beneficial to the existing shareholder base. And it sends a strong message to everybody that we believe in this business and we believe in the future of this business and we're confident in it. 
And as a result, we are buyers of the stock. The whole announcement was around giving ourselves more flexibility, giving ourselves options. And at the end of the day, whenever we see there's excess capital in the business, we can return it to shareholders, either in the form of a dividend or in the form of repurchasing stock. Do you think you've been an organic growth business to date? Are there any circumstances under which M&A might become part of the toolkit? M&A has always been part of the toolkit. It hasn't necessarily been a tool we've often used. I mean, we've done one acquisition, very small, probably 15 years ago in London. Our appetite has always been to grow the business organically, to do things ourselves. And since we started the business, that's always been really the strategy. We're mindful of the risk that comes with acquisition. I think we are at a stage now as a company where maybe M&A becomes more of a tool in the kit, but our focus is still predominantly on organic growth. With doing things yourself, you have a lot more control over it, a lot more control of how you grow, where you go, what exposures you put on the books, and you're just one step, if not more, a lot closer to the business and thus can manage that exposure portfolio a lot better. So it's more likely to be something so you acquired here in London because it was a way of building your platform. I presume you weren't acquiring a huge amount of business along with that business at the time. And so we more like to see M&A that is there to help you construct something. If there was a shell company, presumably you'd buy it, but not like to see big transformational M&A. Would that be right? You never know. You never know. I suppose if you find the right partner that you think this company has the culture that I really like and you admire and you think would be a good fit, then maybe it could work. That's an option. There's always an option. Absolutely. Historically, it hasn't been an option or a path we've gone down other than the one time. But absolutely, it is an option. You never rule anything out? No. We mentioned at the beginning you're celebrating the 20th anniversary this year. Run us through some of the high points and low points of that. It's been 20 years. Well, it's just been high points. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Trust me, we've had our low points. We've, we've had our low points. This year is a special year. I mean, 20 years in the business, you know, the day we started it, it feels like it was just yesterday. So I can't believe that we are 20 years down the road sitting here talking. It's been a great ride. We've had our ups and downs. As I mentioned earlier, we started with three employees less than a handful of classes of business, and now we're over 300 employees and 25 classes, subclasses. We had a vision. We had a well-defined vision when we started. It was heavily focused on the Middle East, Asia, Africa, but it was a vision that we knew would be at least our initial focus as a company, as a group. But we were confident with what we can achieve. You know, we had faith in our approach, in the recipe that we utilize towards the business very entrepreneurial. And to this day, after 20 years, we remain with that mindset. We remain fighting for the business in the same way we were in 2002, when we were scraping the bottom of the barrel for any pound of premium that we can muster. It wasn't easy, obviously, taking off after what was a very turbulent time in the market, you know, just right after the unfortunate events of September 11th. And we were a small company, $25 million of capital with a handful of employees based out of Jordan. We're very pleased with where we are as a company. There's always been the highs and lows, but I think it's the 20 years as a whole that you look at and you just think this is the proudest moment. We have achieved significant milestones. I mean, we're the first 
Middle Eastern company to operate successfully out of London. We're the first Middle Eastern insurance company to list on the NASDAQ, obviously obtaining the financial ratings. But the pandemic as well was such a highlight for us. We talk about the family culture, and that's exactly when, you know, compassion, dedication proved to go a long way. Operationally, we moved smoothly from office to home, but most importantly, we were there for our employees and were there for them whenever they needed or required anything. So it's been a great ride, 20 years, but hopefully the major highlights are still to come. And so we look forward to the next 20 years and beyond. Probably the biggest three-letter abbreviation of the last year has been ESG. And following on from that, a much greater focus on diversity and inclusion. I suppose as a business that you describe as a family, how do you approach that? Particularly bringing your own particular Middle Eastern flavor to that. What sort of approach do you bring to DNI? Because you've certainly been known quite well for it. Certainly on some of the gender-based DNI initiatives have been quite eye-catching. Has that been a conscious decision of yours to sort of stand out in that way? Is it just the way you already are? It's the way we are, exactly. <laughs> Our commitment to corporate social responsibility, CSR, and charity work has always been an essential part of the strategy, the long-term strategy, the corporate character of IGI. We've been, we've strong believers, you always have to give back to the community. The community is what gets you to where you are and is a reflection of you. So our responsibility goes well beyond the business that we conduct on a day-to-day -day basis, the business that we write. I mean, we launched our DNI program back in 2018 and further refined it since then. And the aim is now is to transition to a more fulsome ESG strategy, uh, you know, environmental, social governance. I think we're very strong with social governance and it's a larger ESG strategy that we're now working on. So we recently set up an ESG working group internally within the company, represented by various functions within the operation. And that committee or working group's purpose is to develop that, that strategy, to progress it, to monitor the implementation of it. And then to communicate it externally. We haven't been in a position to do that yet. And one of the top priorities is to develop and establish the charter and the processes around building the strategy. But the formation of this strategy is a major step for us. And it's an important milestone as well. And it's just something that we will continue to work hard towards. It seems to be that ESG is now going to permeate everything that you do. Obviously, the clients that you underwrite, how you go about your underwriting, where you invest and also, of course, how you conduct your own business. I mean, how big an opportunity do you think it is, particularly for an entrepreneurial business like yours? I mean, it's an opportunity. We have to play our part. We are, at the end of the day, a small drop in the ocean. As a company, we're not necessarily considered the influencers, but it's all about what we think is best for the community. We're not looking at ourselves or looking at our peers in the market and looking at what they do, because what they can or cannot do is different from what we can and cannot do. The most important thing for us is to play our part and it's to be a responsible citizen. It's not about gaining necessarily the recognition or the praise for it. It's about doing what's right. And that's the opportunity that is available. How much do you think it's going to affect the underwriting, for example, over the next 10 to 15 years? I mean, the are there going to be a lot of opportunities? I mean, is it going to be difficult in some of these high carbon energy classes, for example? It will be, but it's very difficult for us to say what we can and cannot do over the next 10, 15 years or what the world is going to be able to do over the next 10 or 15 years. I think we have to be mindful of what it is that we can do. Where we're going to be in 10 or 15 years, 
you never know. But the most important thing is to do what we think is best, what we think is right, what we can conceivably and realistically do ourselves as a company. But it will definitely impact your business and it already has impacted some of our business. And so it will continue to. But it's a developing issue. And obviously there's a lot of debate around it and different ideologies, different thoughts. We just want to make sure before we come out with anything, it's, it's thought through, it's methodical, and it's realistic. And it's going to happen anyway. It's happening all around us, and some of it will be it regulatory. Is. Some of it, we won't have much of a choice. I absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Take it day by day. Uh, and do what you can. And do what you, you can. can, absolutely. And be a responsible citizen. Yeah, that's good to hear. That sounds like a good company motto, so do what you can, do the right thing. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. So thanks very much for your time, Waleed. Here's these 20 years, and good luck for the next 20. And I hope, obviously, we don't wait another 20 years before we do a second podcast. I'm available whenever you want. Thank you very much, Mark. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>